Heavenly Father, give us a humble, receptive heart to accept thy teaching and learn of thee. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I planned on uh, a 60-minute forum, which is not a very wise thing to do. And I had planned on 45 minutes of presentation and 50 minutes of discussion. This forum could probably cover, the material could probably cover five forums, like one a day. So I'm going to go down through it reasonably rapidly. And it is all, a good bit of it will be in a pamphlet that will be on tables as you leave. So I don't expect you to take notes, and I don't expect you to remember too much from the verbal presentation. But uh, just to get the idea as we're going through this. Um, there, we all know what truth is, don't we? Everybody in this room knows truth. It's sort of a, it's sort of a, a battle between the Word of God and Jesus Christ. And I would lean toward Jesus Christ because he was around before the Word, although he is the Word. The, what we consider the word, the Bible, he was around before that and he'll be around after. All that is fulfilled. But the word and Jesus Christ are generally regarded as the same thing. Um, so we're going to start very basically and move forward. This is probably the only slide that you would get maybe close to 98% agreement on in the world. From here on earth, it gets in murky waters. But, but we exist. Now, if we exist, then we can assume there's a creator, right? I said this is going to start out basic, for a good reason, I hope. Now, if we believe that the creator has spoken, and our creator has spoken, and he has spoken in a, in a number of ways, in conversation, remember, with Adam and Eve, and others, in a voice to Ab Abram and many others, and tables of stone to Moses, laws, scrolls in the Bible to literate people, and in inspiration and guidance to us up to today. These are various ways that, that he has spoken and speaks. Our responses generally are, fall into three categories. It seems to me obey, disobey, or question. I'll leave it up to you to decide which one you do most of. But that bottom one is the one I'm kind of interested in because it's a subcategory of disobey. And we do an awful lot of that. In fact, if I had three objectives for this forum, one would be that we all reason away parts of God's word. Number one. Number two, we have weakened a major protection against that provided by God which is the confession to one another and the support of one another. And number three, we disregard the seriousness of grieving the spirit. God has put in place protections so that we don't move away from the truth in three functions, the leading of the spirit, the word, and the support of the brotherhood. And we really create our own problems with all three of those. The very first question recorded in the Bible is, you could have all answered this question, hath God said, or did God really say? You remember where, where this is? About the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this question was not 
put forward to clarify the will of God, was it? Gideon asked a question to clarify the will of God, didn't he? His motive was, was proper. You know, he didn't... This question is, is basically designed to resist the will of God, to get around the will of God. And this is the one that causes us the problems. Did God really say? And interestingly, man's been asking that question ever since. Every human heart, because of... Remember, you know, the neat thing about this form is as I'm sitting through all these uh, other forms and sermons is you hear all these pieces discussed already at camp. And when uh, Satan, this was I think in a sermon, so I apologize to whoever spoke of it, I don't remember their name, can't give them sufficient credit, but I guess the Lord really should get the credit anyhow. Um, but when Satan tempted Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said you would be as what? God's. So, and this really appeals to us because it is in the heart of every, after eating that tree, there is in, in the heart of every human being a wish to replace God or to be God. I think we have to, I would recommend that you accept that as a fact. Maybe you don't want to, but. Now, this is sort of a quick sketch of how thought has developed down through time. Human thought has sort of evolved. I, I said this in the introduction today briefly. There are ancient times, Greek and Roman, early Christian, Middle Ages, Renaissance. Then this Reformation we'll be discussing a little bit later. Scientific times, modernism, postmodernism. Even though thought has evolved in these ways down through time, the fact man has been questioning God in each of these eras and um, saying, did you really say that? So it sort of cuts through all of these. But some of these eras are more notorious than others for asking that question and moving away from God. But the interesting thing is, if you look at human development, um, I think we go through a similar evolution. In childhood, we, we, we are taught sometimes some childhood stories that aren't real detailed. You know, almost more look like myths, but they contain truths and wisdom, but not with a great deal of, of foundation or, or, or that. And then in adolescence, we, we get more into the word. And then in early adulthood, but a, a funny thing hap, happens in middle age and later adulthood is our lives get more complex. We get involved in more and more relationships. We have spouses and children that create complex relationships. And then we, find, we may find ourselves asking the same question, did God really say, about some of these complex interpersonal relationships. Whereas before, we would have just accepted it. Now suddenly there are new pressures. And I think Brother Ron Bauman, I can remember this because it was only last night, um, really summed it up brilliantly when he said, we fear man, not God. And this is really at the core of why we waffle and why we question God and why we wonder, did God really say that? Because of these interpersonal relationships that paint us in corners and we have a failure of will, a failure of conviction, and these happen more in middle age and later adult, it seems to me. So, down through time, there's a steady march away from simple faith to sort of a cluttered faith. I think it's my bias and that uh, one of the reasons for theology schools, and one of the reasons for a lot of the office hours of the clergy is to 
trying to find a way to bend God's rules so that you can accommodate powerful membership who want to violate them. And so you figure, all right, well, how can we accommodate this? How can we, you know, just sort of bend this a little so that we don't lose this influential person? So that Ron Bauman, I guess the spirit through Brother Ron Bauman, talked about fearing man more than fearing God. And this is how it works. And so we get more and more cluttered. We move further and further away from the word. And then, you know, hopefully sometime along that process we recognize what we've done and there's some sort of a mini-reformation or a major reformation or a revival or whatever word you want to call it. But as you increase knowledge, there's a verse that says, I, and I couldn't find it, and I've got a pretty exhaustive bunch of encyclopedias and dictionaries and concordances in this thing. I mean, there's probably the best stuff that's available, and I couldn't find this verse, so maybe I've just imagined the verse. But isn't there a verse that says, uh, much study destroyeth simple faith? I, there's something like that. But this is the closest I could get to it. He that increases knowledge increases sorrow. But the, one, the intent I wanted to get across was, Anybody can help me with that verse? Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Well, that is the truth. That's <clears throat> yeah, I, but it's it's impact on simple faith. There's a reference, and it isn't simple faith isn't in the Bible. So, any help over here? The George just said. Yes. Oh well, that's a great verse, but it wasn't the one I was looking for. Thanks. I knew that. <laughs> Okay. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, what they said of Paul. So maybe it isn't in there. You know, sometimes you wonder about your memory. Um, what has evolved then is, is we've evolved a faith in mankind to sort of solve his own problems. And you'll see this rising up in the, in the uh, more sophisticated eras in history and in... Um, uh, as people think they become more educated or more knowledgeable or more experienced. This isn't limited to educated people. I've seen people so puffed up with their, their, their own evaluation of their long experience that they were unteachable. Frightful position to be in. But, but they are pl placing too much confidence in their own ability to solve their problems. This is sometimes called, in, in some of the philosophy books, a Dionysian worldview, where, where basically man is going to evolve over time and solve his own problems. As man evolves, problems get solved. Well, it doesn't seem to be the way it has worked out. I mean, and there are people that still hold on to that view with greater faith than any Christian ever had, because there's no evidence to support that view, in my opinion. Well, there is some. I mean, let's be honest. We're using hot, and hot water and to take showers is very convenient. So we've solved a bunch of problems in technology now, but, but not the real important spiritual values. Uh, other people have called this humanism, basically believing that humanity is going to rise up and, and solve its own problems. And in this process, what has happened is they reject an absolute moral authority. If anybody's read Francis Schaeffer, you're going to recognize some of this influence. And I think that's, that's what's going on. Uh, this is an absolute moral authority and, and people interested in man's solving his own problems and evolving that have to reject that otherwise they got nothing to do because it's already basically been done. So as man moves away from these absolutes in, in the Bible or if, as Francis Schaeffer said, I may as well just read it, if there's no absolute by which to judge society, society then is absolute. 
to what society decides is absolute for that society for that period and that time. And um, so we create we create absolutes, you know, transitory or variable sociological law um, on the basis of what seems to be sociologically helpful at the time. And I, you know, just bear with me, you know, if this is if this seems a little bit murky, but you, you'll see evidence of this in um, Supreme Court decisions, for example. If the Supreme Court can't really rely, make a reference to the Bible and say, okay, you know, that's it, then, then what do they use for their, their basis of morality? Well, they try to use what seems sociologically helpful to the people at the time. And, and that's really why they're standing on their heads making a lot of kooky decisions, and that's why they're going to be changed every 20 years or less down through our history until such a time as we accept an absolute moral authority again, if we ever do. Not, I wouldn't hope on that, place much hope in that solution, because they don't seem to be getting it, and they've lived with a lot of these problems already for probably a hundred years. So they're not going to move back to an absolute moral authority, but abortion decisions, you know, probably, I don't know the statistics, there are people in here that feel more passionately about this than I do, but I, I think it's vividly clear that, that the United States has, has killed more people than Stalin and Hitler and EDM in combined and probably do so almost yearly. I don't know what the statistics are. And there are people that are really troubled by that. Um, and the Supreme Court apparently has given that a stamp of approval. And so we find ourselves in this you know, odd situation. Or free speech decisions. The most recent one was pulling in God we trust, or in God, under God, out of the Pledge of Allegiance and things like that. You'll see these things come up because what, all you've got to do that now is, is get a group of people that are vocal enough and, and want something. And if they can impress a, a legislature or a, a court panel or a jury that this is a powerful sociological value, they got it. And that becomes the cultural absolute for the time. Uh, so what, what Schaefer has said, and I think this is probably true, is the, the two more or less permanent values left, if you've thrown away the Bible and all of the absolutes in the Bible, the two that do seem to be anchored pretty robustly in the human spirit is per, they value their personal peace and their affluence. So what you're finding, and this was true in Roman times, this is not just a modern phenomenon. You could, you could do, you can do anything you want as long as you don't interfere with people's personal peace and affluence. And that's why you've got the straight, in my mind, the, the bizarre situation right now where the United States can pursue a foreign policy that bombs an awful lot of innocent people. But because they're not drafting your sons and your sons and daughters, and it isn't interfering with your personal peace, you don't have any great objection to this foreign policy. It's a it's a horrible foreign policy, but we're we're callous to it because it doesn't affect our personal peace and it doesn't affect our affluence. In fact, we understand it to preserve our affluence because it keeps an oil flow going and it, things like that. But there are things that this so-called Christian nation and our so-called Christian president are doing that I believe are morally reprehensible 
and violate all kinds of biblical texts. And the Christian world loves this current president and this administration and is, is really confused about the values. Very confused about the values. Okay, and this is the reason why. You can, you can invade any little country. You can do anything. You can offend all the other minorities in the world as long as I don't feel personally threatened about my personal peace or affluence. Well, let's get off of that um, because I, it sounds like I don't like the current president. I like him better, actually, than the last one. <laughs> but um, the, the, what has happened is this, this, uh, this moving away from the absolute biblical standard started within minutes of Christ ascending into heaven. This did not wait until 1960 to get started. In the early church, the very early church, uh, the authority rested on the Bible alone, where I think we would like to see it rest, where I think it, God's intention for it is to rest. But by the middle, well, very early, uh, authority was divided between the Bible and the church. And what they mean by the church there is the church became very powerful and became political and tinkered with, the, with social positions. And of course, then all the politics, all these relationships we talked about, then you had a, you know, wars between the popes and the kings, and on and on and on and on, and it just basically got wash, washed out. And the, the church embraced man as able to judge authority, and uh, the most powerful church down through history, and probably still today, does not regard this Bible as the only absolute, but probably has libraries of texts that they consider inspired of God that would bigger than this campus. It's huge. And it, they value that as, as, as highly as the biblical text that we read. So why did, they, why did they do this? Why did they move away from this Bible's absolute authority? I think, this is my speculation, to appear less primitive to the world and to appeal to an educated world. The world is going on with science and philosophy and all this, and the church wanted to, quote, appear relevant. Sounds a little like fearing man, doesn't it? I, uh, that, you know, that question, whom shall I fear? We know the answer is God, but whom do we fear? Everybody in this room fears man somewhat, if we're honest with ourselves. And that's what we have to look at. Do we have the courage to stand up for absolute biblical authority? Do we have the courage to stand up for convictions in this day and age among, among what we think are educated, uh, sophisticated people? And this is where we probably... Uh, fail. Um, all of these references are in, in the pamphlet, but Eberhardt, he, he's in Pennsylvania, I guess. He, he said, uh, to the same degree that it or Christianity found favor with the educated, it departed from the central message of the kingdom of God. So you, you see Christianity starting to erode because of this movement away. Interestingly, um, there's a couple of quotes in here from Carl Jung. Carl Jung was absolutely nowhere's close to what we would consider a Christian. Always, but I consider him, and he was a very immoral, immoral man, uh, but, but he was a pretty, pretty disciplined thinker, and he's got some amazing insights into the Christian world. And uh, this is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> Jung said the formulation of ethical rules is not only difficult, that, now rem remember, this is a formulation of ethical rules. Okay, this is a formula. Jung is saying that's not only difficult but impossible because one can hardly think of a single rule that would not have to be reversed under certain conditions. 
Formulation of ethical rules is impossible. I got news for Carl Jung. It's not only possible, it's been done, and he's just rejecting it. And one of the reasons he rejected it is because in his personal life he violated so many of them. But they were there, and he knew about them. I think his father was uh, in the clergy in some fashion or another. I mean, and he was not, he was a, of a Christian background, uh, unlike many of the early psychological theorists who were mostly Jewish, Jung was um, actually from a Christian background. And um, this is just to talk, talk about this term of relativization. Uh, Newman talks about making, making values or absolutes relative, relative to the circumstances, relative to the, the culture, the event, you know, is a, they consider the result of development. This is that humanism coming through thought, and say, and they think they've improved things because they uh, because of that. This uh, the, I'm afraid the church has pretty well adopted. And when I say the church, I don't mean our church. I'm talking about Christianity. Although I think it's true to some extent in our church also. We have to ask ourselves these questions. And again, I think the the reason that church adopted this variable system of values is to appeal to the world opinion and a, and a model after world opinion. They're influenced from both directions. They want to be taken seriously by the intellectual community and, and they're also sort of influenced by the intellectual community. This weakened the church. When the church abandoned absolute authority, it, uh, it necessarily, by definition, weakened itself. Now, Here's the devilish thing. Then world opinion turned around and condemned the church for its weakness. Think about this a minute. The church made a fatal decision for the, for, for the uh, purpose of, of gaining influence in the world, and it ruined them. Isn't that, isn't that just the way the devil works? The more we seem to fix things, the worse it gets. We've heard at least three times from the pulpit this famous Kennedy quote, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country? Do you, under, do you realize that that, could, that point, that speech, could be identified as a, the watershed for when a huge welfare state began in this country? Before, in, in my lifetime, I was only nine when that speech was made, but you, you, it wasn't uncommon to hear, you know, people were too proud to take welfare wouldn't dream of it. It was an offense. They, they had, a, you know, too much personal pride. Now, you know, my profession has a pretty substantial number of people coming to me because there are a handful of diagnoses I can make in my limited practice that'll get them uh, a supplemental security, social security income. They're not at all ashamed about it. And, it. and isn't it ironic that he made this appeal to not ask what your country can do for you. And ever since that speech has been made, more accurately it was Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, but you know, it serves as sort of a watershed because that was only three years later. You know, this incredible flop. It is typical of human nature, it is typical of Satan, that, that if you try to fix anything other than the way God wants it fixed, your efforts will make it worse. Your efforts, by definition, will make it worse. The Great Society completely paralyzed uh, a couple of large sections of this culture. Before then, uh, some of these poor families, 
you know, had respect. They had both parents in the same home. They wore suit and tie. They were church going. After the Great Society, there were there was a financial incentive to have single parent homes, and people lost any sense of self respect and just got in the line for what they could get out of the government. And and it's you know, the 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 designers, the well meaning designers, thought they were they were solving the problem. They were making it worse. Um, so this old ethic. This quote um, it basically is saying, the old ethic or Christianity must be held responsible not only for the denial of the shadow side, but also for the creation of the resultant split. What he's saying here is the old ethic has to be held responsible for the failure, and our Christianity has to be held responsible for the failure. So this is the world sort of turning around and, and, and pounding Christianity for basically abandoning absolutes. They, they don't know that, they just know that it had failed. Uh, this would be like, this would be like going to a doctor with an illness, and the doctor giving you medication and saying, "Take this once a day," and then you take it like once a week, and you get worse, and then you say, "The doctor made me sick." You didn't take it the way it was supposed to be taken, and then you you say, "The doctor actually caused the illness and made me sick." That's the logic here. What happened was this. This system, this, this system found in this Bible is robust, is permanent, is eternal. Uh, not eternal, but it's good for the length of, of mankind. And it works. But if you tinker with this, then it fails to work. It fails to work properly. And the church did tinker with it, so it started to fail. And now they're climbing on the church and criticizing the church for being part of the failure. Um, so, I don't know where Wycliffe fit in, in all this. I don't know the dates. Was he part of the Reformation? or I don't know. Anyhow, he supposedly said, the Bible is the final authority, the Bible is the only authority, and that, of course, is, is our view. Um, Francis Schaeffer again said, biblical absolutes allows a consensus on values, and this leads to freedoms without chaos. What it means is an awful lot of the, the, the decisions that you would have to create if you abandon the Bible keep you busy and keep you constantly negotiating, constantly being th challenged, you know, and, and, and challenges all the way up to the Supreme Court eternally. If you simply accepted biblical absolutes, you'd free up an awful lot of that apparatus with an awful lot of those questions, and you could, you, a lot of the chaos about what you do believe, where you're going to come down on abortion, where you're going to come down on this, that, and the other thing, would be would off the agenda, and you'd be free, that would be a great freedom. To not have to iron that out every time a new interest group comes along and, and uh, wants to. Be. So th this business about the Bible, biblical absolutes, uh, haven't we always believed this? Do we, don't we believe that the Bible is absolute? No. The answer is we don't always believe this. Now, this is a challenge that we're living with as much as anybody else. And that's you know, the utility for having a form here. Most of us claim this view of the Bible that we think it's absolute. But when the genuine threats to our safety or status, we often shrink. And this is the problem. This is the problem. And the extent to we shrink, we're, we're basically replicating all that history. To the extent we shrink, we're going to start failing, and then people will criticize us for the failure. And, and the reason we shrunk was to avoid it. Ask yourself if you've changed your views on some of these things. And I don't want to go into these in great detail. The top one, church attendance versus business. 
you know, have you, have you, are you, are you different today about that point than you were five years ago or ten years ago? Nonviolence in the military. Do we find ourselves kind of advocating a hawkish military attitude regarding the 91 Gulf War or some of this anti-terrorism business? You know, how is the, the intellectual world, how is the world influencing us in all of these things? Uh, oh, I wanted to say one more. Entertainment and divorce, oh, those are things I, I guess... D divorce, you know. I, I read in a uh, booklet um, in the sanctuary about some other Mennonite function, and uh, they and noticed in there that they had uh, a, a woman in the clergy... Are we, um, are we waffling on our position about that? Ask yourself. I think, I think we probably, that isn't probably very far down the, the road if we, if we don't think these things through for ourselves. When as I said before, when challenged by family or friends, we often look for a, a way around these, what quote, confining biblical teachings. Because while, sure, they're confining, they're not confining in the, in the punishing sense. They're confining in the empowering sense. And that's a big difference. Now, the Proverbs, we've heard this also this week. We've heard a lot of this all this week. Trust in the Lord with all your might and lean not unto thine own understanding. Lean not unto thine own understanding. What is, why is that in there? Why is that phrase in there? Because we do. We want to be as God's. We'll think this one through, thank you. We, we'll fix this one. We'll call you on the big stuff. Or in the New Testament has a similar one, casting down. This has also been said several times from, I think, more in, in uh, inspiration hours. I may, my memory may be foggy on this. Um, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is truth. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Because we fear man. When the word of the Spirit urges us to do something, what do we do? How responsive are we? Or are we uh, hesitant or questioning? Or uh, We think we observe the Bible. We think we're, we're faithful to the Bible. What in the Bible do we observe and how do we decide what we observe? We observe a good deal of it, and I think that's excellent. And we continue to observe a good deal of it. Here are some things that we do observe, I think, and, you know, the, and the list is, is much, much longer. Communion, baptism, giving, head coverings, not swearing, modesty, faithfulness. And some of these represent relatively small sections of text in the Bible, do they not? But we've elevated them to, to a pretty influential position. Now, what about some of these things we skip over, like witnessing to others? Reproving evil. This is something I think we've got to, we, we're hearing about in camp. Preaching the word in and out of season. We don't even do it in season, let alone not out of season. You know, we're, we're very reticent about that. Washing feet, you know, this is the old, this is one. And, and uh, there's, a, there's an even more obscure one, drink, drink no longer water. That's in the Bible. And I notice there's a drinking fountain out here, and I've stopped at it several times in preparation for this. This work. But you know, if, if you think about that, let's take that one, which is probably the most bizarre one that 
somebody might claim you ought to do, but nobody thinks that's reasonable to do. Now, just think if somebody decided, okay, I'm going to do that. Somebody said, all right, it's in there. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to drink water anymore. So let's say they don't count bottled water as water, just, just public water, drinking fountain or something. And then let's say some terrorist dumps a bunch of pollution in some municipal water supply, but this person took that view. Would that text insulate them from the terrorist act? Guess what? It's silly, but it might for a while until it got into the washing the food and vegetables or whatever. But it's just something that, what I'm saying is, things that we have been tempted to pretty well sort of skip over or gloss over, we ought to probably slow down and take a look at, a hard look at. I think our doctrine is robust, and I think it can be defended. But sometimes the way we defend it isn't, isn't robust. Sometimes the arguments we use aren't really the best arguments we can use. Um, I would like to see, I'm thinking about this washing feet issue. I know Tony's had an experience with that recently. Or I would say, and this is, I'm putting a little leaning under man's own understanding here, and I understand I'm doing that. Washing feet would be more intimate, obviously. But I think a, a 20th century equivalent might be uh, polishing people's shoes. We should put a shoe shine stand in our churches and the materials and just polish one another's shoes if we want to. That would be a nice thing. When I went, visited Budapest, I got up in the morning, walked out, and somebody had polished my shoes overnight. You know, I'm not saying that's a pure equivalent. Washing shoes is obviously a much more humiliating, a much more personal event. Maybe we should do both. We'll think about it. Now, what about a, a minister recently had this next one? Lay not up treasures for yourself in heaven. This doesn't say any. There's no percentage here. It doesn't say not more than you know thirty million. You know, keep it under twenty million. It says lay not. Well, we got some work to do on that one. So we got some of the biggest sinners in the world in our in our group. If that's if that's truly an instruction. How many of us have done all three steps of Matthew 18? How many of us have done two of the three steps? How many of us have done one of them? How many of us have promised to do them? We say, did God really say? So what do we think when we get there? When we, when we, when we say, I know I ought to do Matthew 18, I know I ought to talk to them, then what do you say? Well, you know, they'll be offended. It won't work. This, that, or the other thing. That's when we're leaning on our own understandings. Should abandon our own understandings and just do what it says. That's what we should do. And that's what I should do. Uh, we tell ourselves, uh, it's basically the reemergence of man's reasoning. This is why the Apostle Paul said he has to die daily. He's just got to basically kill. The temptation is... Um, to, to reason away these convictions and leadings and callings of God. But let's look at some examples of success. David's battle with Goliath. Recently we had this in the Bible study, if you follow the church's Bible study thing. This is a... The, to, I want to spend a minute on this. David... The, well, the children of Israel found themselves in an impossible situation. They were deadlocked for some length of time. I don't know what the length of time was, but it, the, the situation was hopeless. Absolutely hopeless which is God setting the stage for a miracle. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a robust 
um, useful Christian get used to this habit of God's of stripping away all human resources and putting you in an impossible situation. It's his standard method of operation. Okay? Now, then somebody, and in this case, a shepherd who wasn't even supposed to be there, somebody has a clear vision given by God of how to solve it. And for that person, for that event, for that moment in time, it isn't even a big problem. David understood exactly what was going to happen, had no fear about it because of his experience and the inspiration of God. So for David, it wasn't even any big deal. And then what also is in the equation, the criticism of his brethren. Figure, factor this in, and if you can't take that, that is that you fear man more than God. And that's where we all fold up the tents and go home. Because it's always there. Not once in a while, not just in some mean situations, it is always there. And then there's the willingness to do it. The same thing could be said for Mars lecture, uh, Paul's lecture at Mars Hill. It's an impossible appearing situation. Paul had a very vivid, I believe he had an inspiration, like in one complete package of what to say and how to say it. I think it was real obvious to him what to say, and I don't think, it, and then, you know, but imagine the ridicule that he had to ignore to do it. I mean, here's this unsophisticated, well, he was pretty sophisticated, actually, but he's coming into a group of people that thought they were far more sophisticated than him and saying some things that they weren't probably going to like, and most of them didn't like it, but he was willing to do it. We know about Joseph and uh, the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, it's impossible situations. But God gives one problem solver the vision. And it isn't always the same person. We've got to be open to inspirations being scattered around the group somewhat. And uh, then uh, we have to understand how to handle peer pressure and the willingness to do it. Again, this is about if they would abandon their human reasoning and follow this vision of success... Um, but reasoning would consider the terrible opposition to the vision. Um, this reminds you of that. You remember the parable of the sower and the seed that fell in the uh, stony ground. Stony ground? So there was a little bit, it, it shot up very quickly, but when uh, persecution arises because of the word. Not per persecution because you goofed up, but the persecution like that criticism. It is, it's offended and it withers away. If you, if you can't take criticism, you, you haven't got it figured out yet. Because it's, it's like a swimmer who can't take water. Criticism is the, is the arena you're working in. Because you're, you're dealing with a commodity that isn't real popular. It boils down to faith. And Hebrews 11 has a long example of this faith. Um, we have to choose God no matter what the obstacles because God removes obstacles as a matter of heavenly routine. Routine for God. Do you have faith in that? And this is a quote, I don't know where he fits in in all the theology, but um, probably there's problems with him in a lot of arguments, but I like this one. Each person must choose between God and the world. No one can say God and the world, 
They are not, after all, so absolutely different. You can't say that. They're not so different. They are worlds different. This is to refrain from choosing. We're placed between two tremendous powers. We must either love or hate, and not to love is to hate. So hostile are these two powers that the slightest inclination towards the one side becomes absolute opposition to the other. And we see this in, our, in, in converts. We see this in people who are convicted. So hostile is conversion or Satan that, that right at the moment of decision, there's tremendous power right there. And if you play around with that, if you say, oh, I'll wait till next year, this is, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing because that you're at the fulcrum of the power, of the two poles, of the forces. Even Jung, remember we put a bad mouth him earlier, even he got this. The Christian symbol demands total devotion and forcing a genuine sacrifice of the self. How did he figure this out? This is straight out of the Bible. This is good stuff. Uh, genuine sacrifice of the self to a higher purpose. Don't think you're going to be a Christian and not sacrifice yourself. You know, this is, this is, the, um, this is a, the truth. And he's given us tools to do this. Grace to the humble. He gives power. He's able to keep. He's able to remove those obstacles. And he makes... Um, Converting the soul and making the simple wise. So let him. In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It doesn't mean you know them. It doesn't mean just because you convert to Jesus, you can suddenly solve Einstein's unified field theory. Say, Al, where have you been all this time? It's very simple. No. It means you will act by the, you will act by the guiding of the Spirit in ways that later, five years later, will look brilliant to people. And, but you haven't got a clue why you did it. You just simply did what you were supposed to do, and it's going to look great later. It'll look, it may look stupid right now. So this reformation that appears somewhere in the middle of this, this evolution was an effort to get back to the Bible, and we have to have reformations in our lives all the time. I see that we're running out of time, and I hate to, to admit I haven't gotten through all these slides, because... All right. Eberhardt wrote, the danger of disunity, the danger of disunity in the, in the first church was overcome. Here are the solutions. These, uh, maybe I should keep on. All right. The, 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 the danger... I, yeah, I have this prejudice to end early, but let me see how much further I can get. The danger of disunity was overcome in the early church by two things. The leadership of the spirit given by the apostle prophets and teachers and by the brotherly love ruling among all members of the church okay do we have those things going for us of course we've got the leadership of the spirit I think we're going to have to fluff up the brotherly love a little bit it's gone a little flat it's probably going flat, if I can be perfectly frank, because, because too many people are too self-indulgent. And, and it, it just hurts other people. Hurts, just hurts, hurts, hurts. However, the people that are hurt shouldn't be so tyrannical about their offenses either. Uh, Brother George had a, a phenomenal sermon at communion 
where he talked about the comely members and the uncomely. I never heard this before. The comely members and the uncomely members. The more uncomely ones are the more important ones. We have to give them the better honor. We've got to do a lot of flexibility. People should get a tape of that sermon. I don't know if we make ones. Of... We don't take. <laughs> Maybe you could write that up in the messenger. That was really... You know, a brother in our church who would grudgingly says greetings to me, after that sermon, said, God bless you, and was very friendly. He's back to a grudging greetings right now, but for a little while, that worked. He does, I'm sure of it, yes. I, I understand that. So we're talking about the leading of the Spirit and the love among the members. We've really got to fluff that up, and, and maybe we need to do that by greeting one another with a holy kiss, maybe even by washing feet. Think about washing someone's feet. That's a very personal, intimate, humiliating thing. And, you know, I think you couldn't go through that without feeling a certain appreciation for the person. Yeah, it's an intimate thing, and it's probably in there for... I'm glad we've retained the holy kiss, and I... In some places we've translated that to the holy hug, but I think it should be both, maybe. All right. We've, we've found that uh, observing biblical teachings has produced... Oh, this is another point. We found that observing the biblical teachings we have observed have had wonderful side effects or benefits to our unity, our fellowship, and our brotherly love and trust among one another. Okay? That, but to focus on those benefits as the reason is idolatry. Think about this a minute. Don't skip over this too fast. That's not the reason we do it. That's the, that's the side effect benefit. The reason we do it is obedience. To obey the word. And the, the blessings result. You, you get back to the word more greedily, more literally, more ambitiously, more sincerely. And the benefits start piling up again. But as the world says, you know, as, as, you know let's face it, the rest of the Christian world looks like they're doing pretty well too, and they've abandoned a lot of these things. And so we're, you know, we're not so sure, are these things so important? And um, so we start reasoning these away, and we run into the evangelical Christian world, uh, and, it's a, and they've got some problems. I want to skip over these. Basically, I would compare the rest of the evangelical Christian world or the born-again Christian world. Them compared to our denomination is similar to the nation of Israel compared to Judah. The nation of Israel, after they divided, had a lot more trouble a lot sooner and fell apart a lot sooner than Judah. And Judah was preserved longer. As God said repeatedly, for David... My, my son David's sake, for David's sake. But even Judah was wiped out. They were both wiped out. And I'm, I suspect that just before the Lord comes, the Christian world's going to be limping along. Because the things we're talking about today are hard to reverse. They take men and women. So, so then you get this situation. This Barna Research Group is located in California. Um, the, the research is born again right now born again adults are just as likely to divorce in fact it's a one percentage point higher than, than the rest of the world they found 86% of teenagers claim that, that they're Christian and 60% of them believe, uh, say rather that the Bible is totally accurate in all it's teaching and all it teaches 
And then six out of ten of them believe, the same people believe you can earn salvation through good deeds. That's not in the Bible. But they just a moment ago, didn't they? They just said, uh, accurate in all it teaches. And now they're saying, ah, it comes through good works. And 53% of them believe that Jesus committed sins while on earth. How can you say, I believe the Bible's right in all its teachings and hold these opinions? This gives you an example of the state of Christianity. And I suspect if we did some real intense sampling among ourselves, we might find we're less resolute about some of these things than we'd like to believe. And you get this way by abandoning absolutes. You're getting drawn into some of the arguments that the Supreme Court uses and that Congress uses to say, well, hey, you know, we're all people and we've got to be flexible. We've got to get along. Oh, absolutely we've got to get along. Um, but what about that reprove evil? Was that in there? Let's just erase that part. And then we'll get along. The true believer lies in a very fragile state. He follows the word without regard to the impact. I don't know anybody that actually can do that, but that's the goal. It's the equivalent of walking on water to do that. We don't like walking on water. Peter couldn't do it for very long. I've never done it. I'd like to think I've done it spiritually a few times, and I, I, covet, I, 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 my, I, I have ambition to do it more. I would like to step out there and be more courageous, be, a, be more fearless about the word. Um, but it's attacked inside the church and outside the church. Francis Schaeffer also said, no totalitarian authority or no totalitarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. In the Roman era, we must understand that when, when one became a Christian, it meant that he stood not only opposed to the surrounding religions, but to the entire culture built on those religions. We are in those days right now. When you become a true Christian in the United States of America in 2002, you are opposed to the culture, pretty much. You're going to run into problems of conscience with the culture all the time. And if you are not, you're in trouble. If I am not, I'm in trouble. If I'm getting pretty famous and popular and I'm cruising along and I'm, I'm flying high and everybody loves me, I'm a sellout. There's no way to improve on the Bible or write a guide that clears it up for today. I mean, yeah, I could sit down and tell you what I think it should mean. Just do this. In 2003, here's the things that it means. That's ridiculous. And, it's, and if you've ever read anybody else trying to do that, it ages so fast. But the Bible seems to never age. Allow yourself to be washed by the Word. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. Thank you.